I'm certain we can do just a little better, don't you think? Good morning. Good morning. Oh, it's great to preach to folks who are alive. That's just, that's just joyful. Well, before I get started, I just wanted to share a quick word of thanks. Um, it's just my privilege and my joy to be here. I should also apologize that I came by myself and didn't bring uh, either my wife or my children who make the package so much better. As you know, this has been an unusual summer for most of America, most of the world, and we had to change some plans, so I apologize for that. My wife would have loved to have been here with me, especially um, we, this is one of our favorite churches to visit. And you probably think, Mark, I bet you say that to all the churches, <laughs> and I don't. Um, we, we've just had a great, wonderful, long uh, relationship and partnership. Uh, Kerrville was one of the earliest churches to get excited about what the Lord was doing, and so we're grateful for that. Um, it's been, uh, we've been on the field almost nine years now, so our partnership goes back a little over ten, and it's been a joy. And so what I really want to do is say thank you for enabling me to do what I get to do, because it's by God's graciousness through uh, the faithfulness of churches like Kerrville, uh, people just like you, and some of you very personally, that we get to serve where we do and have the impact that we do. And certainly there are challenging things that we do, but at the same time, our ministry is an absolute joy and we believe very important. And so we're grateful for the opportunity to do that. So I, I want to say thank you uh, honestly and truly. And again, apologize one more time that it's just me. So um, let me pray for us one more time, if that's okay. And then we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. We are deeply grateful that you are our God, that we are your people. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the opportunity that we have. And we do pray that you would give us just a blessed time in your word, that you would teach us, challenge us, convict us. Lord, help us to understand and to know your will for us from this passage, that we might be the people that you want us to be. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 13, and I will read from our text in just a moment. But I want to bring to your attention the word failure. See, failure is not a word that we really like. It's certainly not a word that we want to describe us. Failure. It's almost distasteful to say and, and to use about another person. That adjective, it's, we just don't like it. And when any of us, if we ever do, sit down to write our autobiography or have someone else write a biography about us, I'm sure that is one of the least popular adjectives that would be on your list. Yeah, describe me as one, two, three. Failure's not going to make the top three. Failure. We, we don't like that. And, and when we look for models, either in the world or even in the Christian faith, we don't look at people that we would describe as failures. And yet this morning, I'm particularly excited to focus with you on a man, Caleb, who by all worldly definitions was an absolute failure. What can we learn from a failure? Some of you who have experienced some kind of leadership might have heard the definition that I've heard many times. A leader is one who can look behind and see who's following. 
And yet we're going to study the life of a man whom the Lord commends, but when he looked behind, there was absolutely no one following. Failure. Sometimes I think we have our definitions just a little wrong. But this morning, we're going to look at a stunning example. The text is going to show us a stunning example of an individual who failed because he chose to trust God and to follow him in full obedience. Perhaps we might say it's a kind of failure that we can imitate. It's the kind of failure that God commended. You know, before we start in Numbers 13, let's get a preview. Uh, I want you to keep in your mind God's perspective, God's assessment of Caleb. Skip to Numbers, excuse me, skip to Numbers 14 and verse 24. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24, this is the Lord speaking about Caleb. So let's get this quick preview. Numbers 14 and verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully. That's the commendation. And what a commendation it is. Goes on the Lord to say, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. The promise follows the commendation. But when we see this story of how Caleb failed, and then we hear the words of the Lord commending Caleb for his stance, for his different spirit, for following God fully, we will begin to reevaluate our definition of success and failure. So what I'd like us to do first is just to look at the story together, and then we're going to come back and pick up a little bit of the assessment and and look at a few things in particular. But let's look at the story. And so I'm going to start reading in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 1, just the first few verses. This is the story uh, of Caleb and the spies. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. You guys know the story. They had, uh, the people of God had come out of the nation of Egypt. God had done some miraculous things in the Exodus, bringing them out. And they'd kind of been bumbling around in the wilderness, as it were, for about a year or so. And so now they're on the cusp of going into the land. And God says, send out the spies. It's important that we understand the quality or the so-called quality of the men who went in. See, because we just saw a, a, a sign-up. Everybody who wants to sign up, go to curville.bible slash whatever. It's open to all. This special mission was not open to all. God, very specifically through Moses, had an elite group, as it were. And it says in verse 2, everyone a leader among them. And at the end of verse 3, men who were the heads of the sons of Israel. These were the leaders. These were the, the spiritual elite. These were the guys who knew what they were doing. Now, the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New are quite distinct. But if I could draw an analogy, I would say this is the pastors and the, the elders and the deacons of the church. If it were. Now, the Old Testament Israel was not a church, but that's a different story. So it's these leaders who go in, not just your average person, it's the leaders who were sent into the land. Now, verses uh, 4 through 16, 
they record the, the names of these leaders. So I'm not going to read each of those names. And it goes down to verse 17 now, Numbers 13, verse 17. When Moses sent them to spy out the land. Now, this is the second time, at least, that we've seen that, that spy out. God sent them in to go in. Why did God send them into the land? Was God lacking in knowledge? And he said, hmm, I wonder what's over the ridge. Is it a big people, a small people? What shall I do? My people are tired, so I want to make sure I understand before I send them in. That is not what happened. That cannot happen because our all-wise, all-knowing God is never without knowledge. He knows everything. And so God's sending the spies into the land was not for his sake. Rather, it was for the people's sake. God knew all that he needed to know. But the people needed to learn and be tested. See, we know that God, in his wisdom and providence, at times tests the faith of believers. Abraham and Isaac is perhaps one of the most famous stories where one was told to offer up his son on the altar. Did God know the outcome of that trial even before it happened, even before he was commanding Abraham to do that? Of course he did. Of course he did. But Abraham needed to see what was in his own heart. And so God, in his graciousness, is doing a similar thing here. He is sending people into the land so that people might understand. And in verses 17 through 20, these are the specific instructions from Moses. Verse 18, see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak. Remember, God already knows, but they needed to know. Whether they are few or many, verse 19, how is the land in which they're living? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? Verse 20. How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort there to get some of the fruit of the land. And now the time, now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. That's going to be important in just a second. So he sends in the people with very specific instructions, these 12 spies. And so they go into the land to discover it. In verse 21, so they, that being the 12 men, the leaders, the heads, they went in and they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob. They went in and they, and they looked all around. And then in verse 23, jump to 23 with me. Then they came to the valley of Eshkel, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men. I want to see this. I mean, I've lived in Southern California, and they had some wonderful produce there. But I want to see the cluster of grapes that is so big that two grown armed men... Warrior types had to have a pole between them to carry it back. I mean, I want to see that. Don't you want to see that? They wanted to see the testimony of God's goodness, whether the land was good or not. And the land was very good. So that place was called the Valley of Eshkel because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. Verse 25, we're just getting the story here. Verse 25, when they had returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. What does that tell us, the end of 40 days? It tells us that they got a good, long look. It wasn't the two-minute trailer. It wasn't the Cliff Notes version. Now remember, they were probably on foot, 
But 40 days, they got a good long look at the land, what it was like. And they saw that the land was very good. And so in verse 26, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. Verse 27, thus they told them and said. Now here's where I need to stop because I want to paint the scene for us. Today, we live in a modern age. Thankfully, we're in air conditioning right now. Some of you are at home, perhaps in your pajamas. We live in a modern age. You can see me through technology. You can hear me quite clearly. Wasn't the case. See, remember, there were thousands upon thousands over estimates or well over a million people in the wilderness. And they would not have had technology to project voices in the reports. How were these reports? And remember, this just wasn't a report to Moses. This is a report that went out to the people. We'll see that. How would this have happened? I rather imagine that they they came in in a group and perhaps there was a raised place, but then the spies were giving their report and they were talking out. Maybe they gave it to Moses first. I don't know. But they were talking out to the people. And so my guess is the the more mature ones and, and the more leaders that hadn't gone out, they came in closer and then the younger people would have spread out. But these are... Thousands upon thousands. So just imagine groups. This is a crowd. This is, this is not Curveville Bible Church. This is many times Curveville Bible Church, all crowded and just going out in a group so that they could hopefully hear. And those who could not hear, because if you're talking close to a million or more than a million people, not everybody can hear. So how do they hear then? Well, some of you played that game before. You know, where you kind of whisper something and it kind of travels down the line. That's what happened, I imagine. And so the people in the first however many rows heard them. But then the people in the back are going, what did he say? And they said, well, the land is good. Oh, the land is good. And it kind of flows back almost like in a ripple. Oh, the land is good. What about the, the, the grapes? You should see the grapes. By the time, I think by the time it got to the back, the grapes were like the size of two pizzas. You know, just like the old game telephone. Things just expand. The grapes, the grapes. And it just kind of flows back. So the good news, the wonderful report is flowing back. And that's what they say in verse 27. We went into the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. Milk and honey just kind of rolls back. The people, they've been in the desert, remember? No AC. So milk and honey, this is music to their ears. And this is its fruit. And I rather imagine they held it up. I don't think they said this is its fruit. And they pointed on the ground and they, they, they held it up people to see. It's what I imagine. This is its fruit. This is its fruit. And that just kind of goes back. This is a crowd type environment. This is excitable. This is Semitic people. I live among a Semitic people. Our emotions are to the outside. Americans tend to be quiet and reserved as a general rule. That, I guarantee you, is not the mentality here. It's not the modern-day mentality in that, part of the, in that part of the world where I live. So the people are excited. They're, they're seeing the good report. But look at verse 28. Nevertheless. That word is a limiting word. That word is like slamming on the brakes. So good report, great report. People are excited. Nevertheless. Kind of flows back through the crowd. See, this phrase is a phrase that is really used to limit the, the, the explanation or the dialogue that has come immediately before. It's really only used a handful of times in the Old Testament. It's used once in Amos chapter 9 and verse 8, 
where it says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. So this is God talking about his massive judgment. But then he uses the same word. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. So this is going to be a massive judgment. And then the Lord limits his judgment with this word. This is a great land. And the spies then limit. They pull back on their good report. So they're saying, the grapes. But here it is. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. This is flowing back. The people who live in the land are strong. And they live in cities that are fortified. Cities that are fortified. Very very large. And moreover, the descendants of Anak are there. Oh, the descendants of Anak. Some of them probably didn't even know who Anak was. Maybe they did. But that just, this is, remember, it's, it's a mob almost mentality. And so there's this energy that is first extremely positive. Then there's this energy that is not positive of all, at, at all. Verse 29, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites. Oh my! And it just flows back. And so there is this bad energy. There's people getting upset. We're going to see in a little bit how upset they were, how dangerous the situation actually was. But this is where Caleb enters the story. And if any of you have seen movies or if you've read books, a lot of them follow a predictable pattern. You get tension... And then the hero comes in and fixes things. That's, that's kind of how it goes. Yeah, that's, that's not how it went here. God hadn't read that story, I guess. What happens here is it says Caleb quieted the people. Now, a few minutes ago, I reminded you that I live among a Semitic people. I lead a, a college and career group at the local church I serve in of about 25 people. And you'd think there were a couple hundred how it is to corral them sometimes. Because we are just a emotional, vivacious, emotions to the outside type people. Explaining rules to, the game is, uh, to a game is almost impossible. So here, I, I want you to understand. It says, Caleb quieted the people. This is how you quiet somebody in America. You say, excuse me. And everybody turns around, including all the little homeschool kids. And if they don't turn around, somebody goes, Hey, he wants to speak. And in just a few seconds, you can be in a room of hundreds of Americans. And if somebody gets up to speak in the front, boom, quiet will reign. It doesn't happen that way in that part of the world. What Caleb had to do was yell at the top of his voice. And I've done this many times. I'm not angry, at least not at the beginning. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to get... Remember, I serve 25 people. And I'll yell at them. Yashabeb la sumato. Which means, guys, please. I'm just trying to get their attention. Oh, and, then, and I'll get a few of them at that time, and I have to repeat it. So when it says that Caleb got up to quiet the people, there are thousands upon thousands of people, and they're upset. And so when Caleb stood out to quiet the people, he took a bold step. This wasn't a timid, I don't know if I'm going to do this. This was him stepping out and commanding attention. That's what he had to do. So Caleb got out there and he quieted the people. He took command. In verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. Now we should notice something here. What he did not do was say, Oh, the people are small. The cities are unfortified. He didn't actually say that because he remember, he'd seen the reality 
He didn't deny what might have been the reality in the land, but what he did do is call the people to follow God. So Caleb gets up and he quiets the people and he screams, we can do it. But again, because this isn't America and they don't take turns on the podium, then in verse 31, what does it say? But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up. So I imagine you've got Caleb over here going, we can go up. And you've got the people over here going, no way. Weren't you listening, Caleb? Weren't you there? Which of course he was. And so you have almost dueling reports going on. Who won out? Verse 32. So they gave to the sons of Israel a bad report. In case we were wondering, the narrator makes it crystal clear. A bad report of the land which they had spied out. The land through which we have gone in spying out is the land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, a part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Remember, this, rip, this ripples back. Because not everybody can hear. So there's these dueling reports, men up, loud voices, dueling reports. And it, we are like grasshoppers. We're nothing. We're nothing before them. And so what is the response? Then all the congregation, verse 1 of chapter 14... All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept. An emotional people. Wonderful people, wonderfully fun to live among, but truly an emotional people. So you have a distraught, angry, despairing people, and they're letting their emotions all out, and they're grumbling. Verse 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. You know, Americans, we just leave churches when we're upset. Here they say, I just, I'd rather be dead than follow you. That's, that's strong. And this isn't like, you know, teenage girl, you know, I, I'd rather die than have you as my parents. This is, this is, mean-spirited, fatal stuff. Verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? So what they've done is they've gone from general despair to blaming the leadership to outright blaming God. Now you say, well, those pagan people. Those people, of course they would blame God. This is the people of God. Imagine that this is, in one sense, Kerrville Bible Church. You are the people of God who have followed God, who have seen God do great things, who know God's word, who have good leadership. I mean, was Moses not kind of a decent leader? Yeah, he spoke for God. He wrote quite a bit of the Old Testament. And yet, they said, would that we had died. Why is God bringing us up here to kill us? They are rebelling against God. In verse 4, they try to lead a coup. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. That's it. We're done. We're kicking out the leadership. We're taking control. Remember, this is the people of God doing this, not the unbelieving world. Now, maybe not all of these people were believers, as it were, but this is the, the larger people of God who certainly had seen God do miracles, who certainly should know better. We should know better. And yet at times, we rebel foolishly, as we should not. To finish the story a little bit more, 
So Joseph, sorry, Joshua, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the lands, tore their clothes. Again, an emotional people. This is a, a sign of extreme anguish and extreme grief. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out, is it exceedingly good? Verse 8, if the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, he gets really direct here. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people for they will be our prey. The protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now this is the turning point. Okay, now this is the climax. Now this is when the people finally come to their senses and say, what are we thinking? How can we rebel against the God who saved us, who delivered us from Egypt, who provided for us and our little ones all this time in the wilderness where there was nothing? He's provided for us. God has been faithful. Of course, Joshua and Caleb, of course we're going to obey. This is not your typical flick. Verse 10, All the congregation said to stone them with stones. They they called them back. Joshua and Caleb called the people back to repentance. And the people said, let's kill them instead. We would rather kill them than follow God. Remember, we're not talking about the world. We're talking about, in some sense, us. If I can be so bold as to make that application. Amazing. Amazing. So we're not going to have time to read it all, but in verses 11 through 12, we see God's pronouncement of judgment. And verses 13 through 19, Moses intercedes uh, with, or to the Lord for the people and says, no, Lord, don't do this. In verse 20, in following, God repents. And then really at the end of the chapter, of end of chapter 14, There's just yet more rebellion when the people say, okay, fine, we'll go up into the land, but it was already too late. And then they say, then they foolishly try to do something that was really disobedience. They try to take the land and they are soundly routed. This is not a success story. By pretty much any definition you can come up with, this is failure. So we've seen the story. Now let's go back again and look at God's assessment of the key human character in the story because God's really the key character in all of the Bible in the Old Testament because Caleb is responding to God but we see through the life of Caleb a faithful man let's look at verse 24 of chapter 14 again and now we're looking at God's assessment of Caleb we've seen how it went down now let's look at God's assessment he says in verse 24 but my servant Caleb and that's pretty spectacular Because the words, my servant, are powerful. We talk about serving in the church, servants of God, and it's a common phrase, and it should be today. But at this time in the biblical history, there'd only been two people who had had that, that title given to them, my servant. And it had been Moses more than once and Abraham in Genesis just once. So for Caleb to be called my servant was high praise. Because quite honestly, the emphasis wasn't so much on the servant, but it was on the my. See, the idea of servant or even slave in modern society today is not well looked upon. 
But the idea in ancient times of being a high-ranking servant to a great king was a position of great honor. And so this is Almighty God. This is the greatest king. And he says, my servant. He has marked Caleb out particularly. But you say, wait a second. Didn't Caleb fail? It's all in your definition of failure. My servant. That's what he calls Caleb. Amazing. God saw the so-called failure and and chose in his own way to deem it success. Because he is the ultimate standard of right and wrong of success and failure. God goes on. But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit. And I want us to focus on that word different. Because it's an interesting word. It means different. It's actually not a very unique vocabulary word. Sometimes when we study a passage, we see a a unique, a special vocabulary word. This isn't one of those words. It's not unique. It just means different. It means other than. For example, Genesis chapter 41 in verse 3. You'll remember the story. It's about cows. Then behold, seven other cows... Somebody was interpreting a dream for somebody about famine coming in. Seven fat cows. Then behold, seven other cows. The word other is the same word different. So seven other cows simply means these seven that are not those seven. Seven different cows. Genesis chapter 8. This is somebody famous that we also know that was in an ark. He says, so he waited another seven days and then he sent out the dove. Another seven days. Meaning these seven days are different from the seven days that it preceded them. It's not exciting. It's just a word that means different, other. But depending upon the context, all words can carry more meaning. For example, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the Lord saying, those gods are different than me. They are in one category and I am in another. So depending upon the context, the word can be more powerful like most words. Now, I want to tell you something about the culture I live in, just to show you how it works. Uh, The Middle Eastern culture that I live in, they have a very unique way of classifying quality. If I say I just needed to buy, we'll say, a screwdriver, I would go into a hardware store, and if I'm broke or I don't really want to pay for something of nice quality, this is what I will say. I will say, give me something from China. It doesn't actually need to be from China. And we all know that China has some great technology. So it's not actually always accurate. But that's the way in their heads that they have classified it is give me something from China. If they want something good, they will, they will usually say, give me something from Europe, often Germany. So I'll go in and I'll say, do you have something from Germany? I've actually had this. I want something from Germany. All I've got something from China. It's not, they're not necessarily trying to be racist. It's their way of saying this quality is distinct from that quality. It's just kind of a a colloquial way in the country I live of, of expressing that. It's about distinguishing different types of quality. Here, when God says, Caleb, he had a different spirit. It's about distinguishing a different kind of quality. Different from who? From all the rest of the people. Remember, Only Joshua of the rest of the spies, and really probably just those two guys and their families, maybe Moses were faithful. Everybody else said, we wish we had died. Let's kill the leaders. Let's take over this operation. Let's go back to Egypt. 
where they had been enslaved for umpteen million years, it feels like. Obviously, they weren't following God. So when God said different, he means of a different quality. It's not necessarily a theological evaluation. It's not necessarily saying that intellectually, Caleb's theology was better than the next person. What he's doing, God is making a moral, he's making a character evaluation. Their theology may all be the same, but this man has stood where the others have not. Caleb had a different spirit. I would like to point out to you one more time that he was different from the rest of the people of God. Not different from the world, which of course we all should be. But God singled him out among his own people. And then he says at the, in verse 24 still, and he followed me fully. Wow. I mean, every parent in here knows what half-hearted obedience is like, don't you? Grandparents too. We got kids and grandkids. And we know what half-hearted, begrudging, dragging obedience is from a disgruntled but know-it-all six-year-old. And we know what full obedience is as well. When someone joyfully, completely carries out the task all the way. You know it at work, if you have employees. Your boss knows it about you. We know it in our families, in our marriages, in our societies. Elders probably know it in the church. We know what full obedience is like. It's not really hard to understand. And God singled him out in a particularly special way to say he had fully followed me. How will you follow God? How will you lead your family? How will you stand out among your peers, wherever that may be? Whether you're younger than me, I'm kind of right in the middle now. Whether you're a few decades younger than me in high school or a few decades older than me just entering retirement. How will you stand? Will you follow God fully? Let me ask you to do something that I, I think is going to be a little bit weird, especially if you're at home. But I want you to take a look around and, and look at people in this room. Look at their faces. I'm serious. Take the time. Take it, catch some faces of the people in this room. People you know, people you love, people you might have known for a long time. People at home, it might have just been one or two faces you looked at. I'm not sure. But you have, get, catch a couple of those faces in your mind. You got those faces? Those people will utterly fail you. Your faith is your own. Those people will utterly fail you. Why? Because they are human. Your pastor will fail you. Your elders will fail you. I will fail you. Everyone will fail you except for your great God. So when you talk about faith, you need to know exactly who you are following. And ask yourself, will I follow him fully? Regardless of what the rest of this room, regardless of what the rest of Kerrville Bible, regardless of what my own family may or may not do, will I follow God fully? Will I have a different spirit? See, that different, it's not a big word until you put it in context. It's a powerful word. I'm sorry to say that everybody else will fail you. And quite honestly, you will fail yourself. And so we throw ourselves on the grace of God and we follow after him. The words in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 are powerful. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your might. This isn't the kind of faith that brought you here this morning. This is the kind of faith that causes you to desperately seek your God every moment of every day. All, all, all. Contrast that with the word failure. Caleb, by many definitions, was a failure. And yet I believe he followed God because God said it. This is one of the great times. Sometimes when you're interpreting narrative, you have to be careful to make sure you get it right. Here, God made sure I got it right. God said, this is the evaluation of this man, my servant, who had a different spirit, and he followed me fully. I have the great privilege of um, coming from a Christian home. I grew up with believing parents, um, and so it's just been a joy and encouragement throughout my life. My father has just been a a very great encouragement to me. And I'll never forget something he said to me uh, one time many years ago. Quite frankly, he probably doesn't remember it. He likes to tease and say he has Sumheimer's. Sometimes he remembers and sometimes he doesn't. Um, But uh, that's his joke, not mine. Uh, But I remember something he said, and this would have been more than 25 years ago. And that's how I know I'm in a new phase of life. My story started, well, more than two decades ago. More than two decades ago, there was a particular difficult time in my life and in the life of our family. And I remember my dad, there was a conversation, and he just looked at me and he said, son, we're Christians. It doesn't matter what other people will do because we are Christians and this is what we will do. And he has a favorite verse that he's often shared, and it is in Joshua chapter 24. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. By the way, this is Joshua. And he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua proclaimed to these same, at times, unruly, rebellious people. That's the verse that my dad shared with me. As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And you know, it is wonderful to go to a good church. And I praise God, I sincerely do, for Kerrville and the other good churches that I know. And it is wonderful to walk with God when you have other people that encourage you. It is wonderful to do that in community. But your faith is most clearly shown when that community is not with you. Your faith is most clearly shown as real and genuine and strong when unfortunately you have to defy those who should know better and walk with God. You have to take that step. If we were to say specifically, what were the steps that that Caleb took? What were the actions that God looked at and said, you followed me fully in those? I think the very first one that we should see is that Caleb took God at his word. If we go back to Numbers chapter 13 and verse 30, it says, surely, uh, sorry, that's verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 30 of chapter 13. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we shall by all means go up and take possession of it. Take possession of what? The land. Why? We shall surely overcome. Again, he didn't say the people are small, the cities aren't fortified. On what basis could Caleb stand up in front of an unruly crowd and proclaim with such confidence that they would surely take the land? Well, on the basis of the word of God. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, 
This is the burning bush uh, episode. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. God speaking to Moses about the people. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land. God had promised that he would take these people up. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15. When speaking to Abraham, God makes a covenant. At the time, he was known as Abram. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river. And then he maps it out for them. God saying, on the strength of his character, on the power of his word, I'm going to do this. So what did Caleb do? He took God at his word. He knew what he said. And by the way, I have no doubt that every man, woman, and child knew what God had said about, hey, we're going up to a good land. Mommy, why are, mommy, why are we fleeing in the middle of life? Because God has promised us. This was not an obscure Old Testament. I mean, it's Old Testament. Not to them. It was the only testament to them. This is not an obscure to us Old Testament promise that we've never heard of. This would have been common knowledge among the people. But a man possessed of a different spirit chose to actually believe it and act on it. What about you? I praise God for this faithful pulpit. And I know for years and years, the word has gone forth from this pulpit. But have you chosen to take God at his word? How do we know? Have you acted on it? See, Caleb stood up when it was hard and he did what was right and he spoke up for what was right. He called the people to order and then he called them to repentance. It was a bold and some might even say a difficult or dangerous act. But this is not a call to be foolish. Rather, it is a call to be courageous. This is not a call to be impetuous. Rather, it is a call to be bold. This is not a call to be pushy. It is a call to be determined. This is not a call to be arrogant. Rather, it is a call to be fully committed to our great God. Because we understand and we know what he has said. And we believe that he can and will do it. See, when we doubt God, what we are saying is that we don't believe him, that he can either keep his promises or that he's power enough. Are you strong enough, God, to keep your promises? Are you going to change your mind? In some way, when we fail to obey, we are often indirectly doubting the very character of God. And at least I, the people of Israel were kind of honest in their rebellion. See, we like to hide it sometimes, don't we? We're good Americans. We do that. You know the difference between young children who bicker and adults? The adults are just better at hiding it. Okay? We like to hide our sins and, and package it really nice. Respectable sins as they were. At least the, the Israelites here, they got it all out. God's brought us out here to kill us. And they were saying what was really in their hearts. They were blaming God for this massive problem. And yet Caleb stood fast. I'm in awe of the grace of God in this man's life. And here's one more thing I'd like to draw your attention to. Because it is perhaps one of the greatest lessons that I learned in the story of Caleb. He, he fully obeyed. He took God as his word. He was bold. He stood up. He refused to be swept along with everybody else. But I learned something else that I didn't expect. And that is that Caleb refused to abandon those people. Because you know what I'd have done? I'd have washed my hands of them. After they said, we're going to kill you, that's when I'd have put in my resignation. 
right there. I wouldn't have waited. I certainly would not have gone for what was almost another 40 years with these people in the wilderness and then another five after that. Because in Joshua chapter 14 and uh, verse 10, this is Caleb. He says, now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years. From the time that the Lord spoke these words to Moses when, uh, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old. So for 45 years, he did not abandon. For 45 years, he was faithful to serve alongside with. For 45 years, he was faithful to love those rebellious people. Because they were God's people. And they were foolish and they were rebellious. But Caleb did not abandon them just like God did not abandon the people as well. And that for me is perhaps the greatest lesson because we can be that way with people, especially when we have taken that stance, especially when we have done the best we could and been bold and courageous and stood on the word of God. And we, even when others haven't, then we can begin to get just oh so teeny arrogant, oh so teeny proud and say, look at these people. I don't want anything to do with these people. I want to make my own little holy huddle of those people who really walk with God. And sometimes that's just me and one other person. And yet I'm blown away by Caleb's dependence upon the grace of God to love and to be faithful to those people for 45 years. I guarantee you that most of you would change churches if the rest of the congregation threatened to stone you. And yet Caleb said, I love God enough to love those people and to stay with them. And Caleb's faithfulness was rewarded. God called Caleb my servant. He said that he was a man of a different spirit and that he followed him fully. But this is a man who failed. I only ask God for the grace and courage to fail this way. That's a prayer for, that I have for myself. That's a prayer that I have for you. Might we learn to fail like Caleb and be men and women of different spirits who will follow our God fully no matter what happens. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good and we are grateful for your word. Your word teaches us. Your word encourages us your word challenges our hearts and pulls us back to you. Lord, I confess my own inadequacies. I confess, Lord, that I am weak and at times I don't have the faith like Caleb because I have doubted you. I'm tempted to want to leave. I'm tempted to want to abandon others. And yet, Lord, you have modeled for us in your own character and ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ, faithful, loving, persistent, gracious, walking alongside Caleb did that. Lord, might we learn to fail like Caleb. Lord, this story really is all about you because you are our faithful God. Thank you so much, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.